Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirit. This week, the highlights of Series 10. Argentine star chef Francis Malman, wine legend Dr. Laura Catena, master blender Ian Chang, Feudi di San Gregorio's Antonio Capaldo, plus Sarah Abbott MW on Georgia and emerging talent winner Alex Brogan on democratising wine. Francis Malman was born in Patagonia, but learnt his craft in the kitchens of Paris. And it was a return to his roots in Argentina, fusing his culinary prowess with his love of fire that resulted in his signature cooking style. With restaurants all over the world, he's more finely tuned to wine than most chefs, yet he doesn't go in for the likes of pairing menus that are seemingly so fashionable at the moment. He's the guest editor of Club Onologique, and I asked him how his wine journey began. Well, I think it really started in Paris when I was like 18. My first trip on my own to Paris, or maybe 19. I already had my restaurant in Patagonia, and I spent like a month walking around, and a friend of a friend invited me for dinner. I met him at the restaurant, and he ordered a sort of a nice bottle of wine. I can't remember what it was. And we had some wine, and by the end of dinner that night, the, the, you know, the bottle was almost full. And I said to him, so we didn't drink all the wine. And he said, no, you have to learn. You don't have to drink all the wine. Wine is a beautiful thing and you enjoy it. And maybe you have a glass or two, or maybe you just have one. And that's perfectly well. That's how I started because that message he gave me made me think a lot about the treasure, the secret that a wine holds and that you don't need to drink a whole bottle to understand it, you know, just with a glass of wine. I'm perfectly well with a glass of wine. I have wine at lunch and dinner every day, but I don't drink much. And, but, but I have this beautiful relation with that short glass of wine that I enjoy. And, and I think it's very beautiful. I'm bound to ask you at this point, which wines you tend to enjoy the most? Well, Again, I think it it has to do a lot with the day and with whom I am. I tend to choose a lot of the wine because I work a lot and I'm always with friends or with someone who works with me or 
and in my restaurants. So it depends, you know. Sometimes I would choose a rosé, which is something that I don't enjoy that very much, or a, a, a very simple wine from Dalsas, maybe, a white wine or a, or a white a Chablis. It depends on what the table looks. I never have a plan, you know. If I invite people for dinner, if I have a guest, yes. If I'm not sitting with them, I choose the wines ahead. If I'm going to sit with them, I look at them. I look at how they're dressed, how, you know, how we all feel, and then decide on the wine. That's interesting because there's perhaps um, a stereotype of a, a globally... Uh, renowned chef that you would only really have, uh, you know, a glass of Cristal or a, you know, a, 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 a Lynch Barge or a, you know, it, whatever, you know, that, that you'd only be interested in the kind of finer stuff, the expensive stuff in life. Uh, but that's not true by the sounds of it. Not at all. And I, I really don't believe in, in harmony in wine. I don't like pairings. I really dislike them. I understand them. I can enjoy a steak with a Cabernet Sauvignon, but I find it boring. I like contrast. I have. I like to have clashes in my mouth when I eat. You know, I like to have a very good wine and something that battles with the wine, and and I, that's what I love. So I think that I never sit down with thinking, God, the menu is this. We have to drink this and this and this. You know, I, I, I have a more free spirit on the choosing of wines and food. Yeah. Does that mean that you're not a fan of pairing menus then? Because pairing menus seem to be kind of all the rage and have been for a, you know, a decade or so. Um, are you not as keen on that concept? I really dislike them. I really dislike them. I feel like in a prison, you know. Why, why, why did they choose this wine for me? Because this guy thinks that it, it works well. What about me? What about what, how I feel today? What about my guests? What about the day I had? You know? No, I really don't like pairing menus. And you talk about this kind of dissonance uh, between um, a dish and a wine, which um, is certainly counterintuitive, countercultural, uh, possibly. Uh, just, just sort of, if you can, uh, give me a kind of example of something that that you might have that is kind of counterintuitive, like that—a a pairing that isn't a pairing, if you like. Well, uh, I think about it. Two nights ago, I had a the most delicious white sole, you know, a lingual, which is like a, a Dover sole, but a bigger one. And it was just cooked on the grill with a boiled potato and olive oil, salt and pepper. And I opened a bottle of Cos des Tournelles, you know, the, the Bordeaux wine. And mm-hmm. it was so delicious, you know, the, the, the juices of the fish with the wine. And there was a dissonance. And that I love, you know. There's a dissonance, but at the same time, you enjoy both, you know. That's what I like about eating, you know. I'm not preaching that everybody should be like I am, but that's what I like, what I enjoy. And if I'm in command of a table and I have to choose a wine, I will, I will choose something that I like. I won't choose what he likes, you know. 
I, I, I want to make a, a point about what I think and how I feel and, and, and the why of, of the wine. How important are uh, Argentine wines um, to your uh, repertoire? Um, obviously, you're talking to me from Mendoza now. You have restaurants in Mendoza, in, uh, in Buenos Aires and, and elsewhere in, in Argentina. Um, do you have a kind of bias towards Argentine wines? Well, I find that Argentine wines, as you know, are, are very powerful. They're great, full of sun, very ripe. And sometimes I feel that they're, they feel more like a, like a juice than a wine, you know, because you drink it and you feel this friendliness with it. But that's it. And I, what I like in a wine is to to have a sip of it and have that first encounter. And then as dinner goes on, I start feeling all these different aftertastes and gestures of the wine that I find extremely important. It's like a... So sometimes I quite, I'm quite a... Not that I put on doubt, but I... I dislike sometimes these very young wines that we are doing, and they're very, very powerful. I, I find the other day I, I was in, in Patagonia with, with a, a dear friend of mine, a, a, one of the best winemakers in America, and, you know, what I'm going to serve this man who, has, who drink, has drank everything. I, I served during a week with him, only very old wines from Argentina, from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Nothing new. It was incredible. Obviously, I don't open those wines very often because I don't have too many. And the beauty of the gestures of those old Argentine wines were, were incredible. So it's an incredible moment, I find, in the, in the wine. I think that big changes are coming. That's what I feel. And the changes will be drawn by very young people who uh, are very knowledgeable about the, what they drink. And they not, don't necessarily drink the wines we drink in, in our generation. And I think that's very interesting. It's very interesting to see how little the wineries are doing for these young people. They just say, ah, they're young. The, this new generation are holding hands all around the world uh, with a way of thinking, not only in wine, <clears throat> in everything. It's, it's like a renaissance, I feel. You know, they're 16, 18, 20, but when they reach 30, they will be sort of governing the world, and we have to pay attention. So I tell to all the winemakers I know, beware look at them, talk to them, try to understand them, and try to start having something for them that will make, that makes them happy. Uh, so that, those are my thoughts. What is that something then, in your opinion? Because uh, you've identified a group there, an age group. You're not in that age group, clearly, and, and neither am I. But what is it that they want that they're not getting currently, do you think? Well, they certainly want organic, biodynamic wines. And it's a market that is growing a lot. They are ready to, to drink an orange wine. 
Uh, they're ready to drink young wines that are done in small quantities. Daily, you know, I don't know. But then the winemakers say, well, let them grow up and you'll see that they will drink our chateau. I think that it won't be the case. Francis Malman on what he thinks younger drinkers want. While staying in Argentina, Catena Zapata is one of its great names, now run by Dr. Laura Catena, who took over the family dynasty from her pioneering father, Nicolas Catena Zapata, who transformed the fortunes of Argentine wine through grit and determination. Laura Catena is a chip off the old block and was recently named Old Vine Hero. So I asked her about her passion for veteran vines. I also started talking a lot about these old vines, the ungrafted vineyards, this genetic diversity we have from Albec, which is kind of an island effect phenomenon. Because you know how when you go to the Galapagos, why does the Galapagos have that diversity? Because it's in an island. And they didn't bring in pests from the rest of the world that killed all the native species, and they didn't bring too many exotic species. And partly it's because it was so remote. Argentina, because of its politics and economics, has been closed in many ways. There wasn't vine material coming from uh, other countries, you know, Europe or North America, for 100 years, between phylloxera and the 1990s. Nothing came in. And what that created was the preservation of this genetic diversity. We didn't have clones of Malbec. We didn't have clones of Cabernet Sauvignon. We didn't have clones of Bonarda. It was all genetically diverse. And now in Europe, they're trying to preserve these genetically diverse vineyards, but they don't have so many of them because there's not that many old vine vineyards left in the world. Yet in Argentina, you know, partly it was one of those blessings coming from this isolation. We have this diversity, and this is something I'm very passionate about, uh, but we, we don't just have it for Malbec. We have it, again, for Bonarda, this variety that's, you know, it's from, from Savoie, but mostly it exists in Argentina. It makes a beautiful fruity wine, a little lighter than Malbec. We have this Torrontes, which is, you know, in a way, the native grape of Argentina, because although it comes from European varieties, the cross happened in Argentina. Um, and we have the Criollas. We also have these really beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon selections. Um, I mean, we have Tempranillo Serrat. We have all these... European varieties that have been in Argentina for hundreds of years. And to me, this is uh, something that needs to be preserved. Uh, and it's often living in these old vine vineyards, which is, is kind of a second reason to preserve an old vine vineyard. One of the reasons is simply to preserve it because why should you pull it out just because it's lower producing? It's, it's you know, we don't kill people as they get older because, <laughs> you know, older people give us wisdom. They yeah. take care of their grandchildren. They, you know, the, asking my father a question, you will always get a wiser answer that if you ask me or you ask anybody else, he has a perspective that nobody else has that is based on all this experience. And all vines actually on, on difficult years with difficult climate will do better than young vines. And in addition to that, they are home to all this genetic diversity that needs to be reproduced. So uh, I, I'm a big believer in in preserving old vine vineyards, um, even when they're lower producing. Um, and, uh, and I think I, I love the old vines movement because, you know, it is more expensive to, sometimes, you know, because some old vine vineyards are highly producing, but most of them will produce less than a young vineyard. And so there's an economic decision to be made. But if consumers prize 
old wine vineyards and they're willing to pay a little bit more. We're not talking about double the price. We're talking about, you know, maybe one more pound per bottle. That would probably cover the cost of the lower yield. And so if consumers choose to drink from an old vine, that allows a producer like me to say, okay, you know what? I can charge a little more for this uh, because the consumers care and let's preserve this vineyard. And anyhow, that, I, I'm really excited about getting this Old Vine Hero Award because it, now I get asked about it a lot more and I get to talk about it. Yeah, well, you are an Old Vine Hero. I was on the panel that uh, <laughs> put together the shortlist and then, of course, you were, it was voted on by uh, followers of of. Uh, the old vine movement, as you say, but um, it was uh, a, a great uh, accolade and, and, and richly deserved. And I always say to people who are into the, to wine, but maybe don't know that much about the impact of old vines. Um, I genuinely believe you can taste it, can't you, in the wine? It, it, it produces yeah, a different sure. kind of more refined wine, I'm, I'm convinced. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I find that old vines will make a wine that's a little bit lighter it's you know it's it's almost like how it an old wine is always so much better than a young vine wine you know i love all kinds of wines i like fresh i like old vintages but if you ask me what what is your favorite favorite wine it will always be an old vintage there is you know that kind of softness and the, what we call the tertiary aromas, that, that those kind of aromas that go on and on and on. And every time you put your nose to the glass, they're slightly different. And, and they're also uh, disappearing. You know, th- this is one of those things I love about old wine is that, you know, if you start drinking it and you wait half an hour, you've lost some of the aromas. With the younger wines, the aromas stay longer. And I love the fact that it's you know, it's it's there and then it's no longer there. And, and there's all this surprise from an old wine. I find that old vine wines have some of that in a young wine, that, that kind of lightness, that delicateness, that, um, that fleeting beauty, you know. And uh, I totally agree with you that there's, there's a particular characteristic to, to old vine wine. And what is it about Malbec, apart from the fact that you've got lots of it uh, and it's Argentinian, although it's of course not, it's French, but it's kind of owned by the Argentinians yeah. now, I think. Um, what is it, yeah. do you think, that makes Malbec so special? Because you've written a whole book about Malbec, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we wrote an illustrated book about the history of Malbec and the terroir of Malbec with uh, Alejandro Gil, our, our winemaker of, you know, 20-something years. Um, so I think that Malbec is... A variety and a flavor that's here to stay because it's delicious. Uh, and you know what I was saying before about the intensity of aromas? It's got beautiful fruit aromas. It's got natural vanilla. This is a really interesting fact. So if you make Malbec in uh, cement or stainless steel, not a drop of oak, and I give you a bottle of that to taste, you, David, who will have an experienced palate, will tell me this has oak because it has natural vanilla. We've done this experiment a million times. So it's kind of cool. You can actually get that, that touch of vanilla that's so attractive without using oak. And so I think Malbec has a beautiful aroma. And then it has these smooth tannins that 
are related to the polysaccharides. So Malbec has more polysaccharides than other varieties. And polysaccharides are sugar-like molecules, but they're not carbohydrates. So they, they don't increase the calories. They, they don't turn into bad stuff in your body, but they give this kind of soft feeling. And so Malbec can taste different from cool climates. It will go more in the floral direction, in the violets. From warmer climates, it'll have more black fruit, uh, maybe more of this vanillin aromatic, but it will always have uh, these uh, potent aromatics and the smooth tannins. Uh, so the, the aromatics might change a little bit, you know, more spicy, less spicy, but always these velvety tannins, at least Argentine Malbec. I believe that these selections we have in Argentina have been lost in Europe. And certainly the wines I've had from Cahors seem to be a little more tannic. But if you review the old French texts from the 19th century, they actually say that you must add Malbec to Cabernet to soften it. So I think this combination of power and soft is the characteristic of Malbec and why I think Malbec is here to stay. It's been around for over 2000 years. Hopefully it will be around for another 2000 years because it's, it's, a, it's a good flavor. It tastes good. You know, the same reason why I think Earl Grey will be around in 2000 years, uh, hopefully chocolate, unless we destroy the environment, then the, a lot of these things will disappear. But you know, why do we like roses? Because it's the human nose is likes that kind of aroma. Um, the, the smell. So I, th I think Malbec is just a very attractive combination of aroma and flavor. And that's why um, it's, it's popular and that's why it will last for a long time, hopefully. Dr. Laura Catena on her beloved Malbec. Well, Old Vines is also very much a passion for Antonio Capaldo, the boss of Feudi di San Gregorio, one of Italy's great premium names, which has done so much for the reputation of Campania's distinctive wines. Though he trained in international finance and practised it for quite a while, he's now back at home with his innovative winery. Being just uh, 50 kilometres away from Naples, the, the, the landscape changes dramatically. You know? So you don't expect to find, you know, kind of the Dolomites of the south. Now it's similar to what you find in the in the northern mountains here. It's a continental island in the center of the Mediterranean Sea. We are 50 kilometers away inland, of course. Um, otherwise, we would be in the middle of the sea. And uh, the whole area is enclosed by mountains, which makes uh, not only that our vineyards grow on high altitude and they enjoy cool climates, but they also uh, we also experience a lot of rain compared to Naples. Now, last year, we had... 195 days of rain. So I know it's not advertisement for visitors, but actually for the wine, it's pretty interesting because this humidity, we have a lot of water is never missing in our area and freshness is never missing in our wines. And uh, Campania, we mostly know because we love going to Italy on holiday and uh, we love going to Campania, quite frankly. Very big province. Um, you're specifically in... Erpinia, which is a kind of county, if you like, within that bigger region, isn't it? Yeah, in, in, in Campania, you have five large towns, each one representing a county. And Avellino is the one in the centre, so it, as I said, on the mountains. And is one of the smallest ones in terms of population, but one of the largest ones in terms of area covered. And within this, uh, so Avellino is the name of the town, 
which also gives the name to one of the appellations, Fiano di Avellino, is one of our DOCGs, and Irpinia is the name of the region. And it's the only region in Italy having three DOCGs, actually, which is the highest appellation of quality that we give to wines. And those DOCGs, uh, just for those doing their homework, uh, they are... They are a bit of suspense before telling that. No, they are Fiano di Avellino on one end. So Fiano is the grape. Avellino is the central town. The second one is called Greco di Tufo. So Greco, again, is the grape. And Tufo is the name of a small town, uh, one of the eight small towns that are part of the appellation. And the third one is called Taurasi. And the name of the varietal is Aglianico. And we're going to talk about uh, all three of those uh, in some depth. But before we do that, um, I want to talk a little bit about Feudi di San Gregorio because it's uh, the name suggests an ancient winery and it is the profile that you have uh, suggests you've been around a very long time. But actually, the reality is rather different, isn't it? Yeah, I think we are. It's 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 a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful context. I mean, we are we have an incredible history, and we spe- speculate about that. We have an incredible tradition. I mean, Italy is all about that, luckily. Uh, but we started as a winery in 1986, so we have a more recent story. I mean, at least for the Italian standards, we are a relatively new newcomer winery, and uh, our mission, our vision, has always been to interpret this tradition. Uh, in, a, in a contemporary way, which doesn't mean deny it, on the contrary, which means living by this tradition, but making it appealing and, appro- and approachable for the consumer today and tomorrow, which has to do with the style of wine, style of communication, uh, labels, etc. When I think about our tradition, of course, we have two big traditions. Now, one is the Greek and Romans that le- left us our varietals. Now, Greco is named after the Greek, Fiano was a Latin varietal already mentioned by Plinius two millenn- two millennials ago, actually, is the anniversary of his birth in 2023. Uh, Ayanico as well came for as a big history. The second tradition is the church. You know, the, the Christian uh, abbeys um, protected, you know, the monks protected and in a way enhanced uh, the culture of making wine from the Roman and the Greek. And, and in our area and in all areas of Italy and southern France, there were so many of these abbeys that, that contributed to that. And in particular, under the pontificate of Gregory the Great, so 7th century, already in my area where the winery is today, there were several uh, vineyards of probably Ayanico back in time. So Feudi di San Gregorio, is uh, the name comes from paying a tribute to this tradition because feudi means estates. The middle-aged term is uh, feuds. No? So basically, these were estates of Gregory the Great. So this is a big uh, big story. And then we have, uh, speaking of the past, uh, which we cherish, and as I said, we try to interpret in, in contemporary way, we also have a sad event that happened in 1980, which was a terrible earthquake that devastated the region. This was actually the founding fact of Feudi di San Gregorio, because my family decided, which was not involved in in wine, decided to invest back in their homeland after this terrible um, episode. Yeah, that's a really interesting detail. Um, The winery, uh, as I mentioned, one of the most prominent and, and most successful, certainly from Campania, but really talking you know, across all of Italy. It's relatively new, 1986, and really born of adversity, wasn't it? 
Yeah, but uh, you know, when you that's that's not bad. I mean, when you are born of adversity uh, and you have a bigger mission, but sometimes it's risky to have a mission that goes beyond the, the company, you know. But in wine, I think it it makes a lot of sense. Now, you said that I started in finance, you know, on the dark side of the world, and I think what was more complicated for me when I came into wine was understanding the the value of time. Time in finance is cost. Time in wine is value. It is true. It's value for a wine. It's value for a vine. It's value for the people, the experience. And I think the good thing about probably my father and my uncle approach, and I can say that because it was not me, so I'm not making myself a compliment. They were, they were not in a hurry. And this came from the, from the strong feeling that they were not after collecting actors on actors, but they were really living this as a challenge. They were leaving Feudi di San Gregorio as a challenge to put Irpinia on the international map of wines. When we started making wine, which was 1991, we were the sixth bottler in the area. It was a big name, Mastro Bernardino, that was there for the previous 80 years. But there were only five other, four other wineries bottling wines. Now there are over 150, and many of those recognize that Feudi I don't want to say what was their inspiration, but felt in a way, led the way, created some space in order for Campania and the Alpinia in particular wines to be grown internationally. So it came out of adversity, but having this uh, mission in mind, I think this was an enormous part of our, of our success. And, you know, David, by not coming from the wine world, probably was, was also very positive in an area that needed some, you know, some shock. So having people that thought also about the brand, for instance, there's nothing bad about it. And the broad, in your opinion, uh, expertise coming from France, coming from Northern Italy, this was positive because we, tend to, we tended to live a little bit on our traditions, maybe even too much. And that brings us neatly to your own decision to initially, at least, um, forego uh, a career in you know, the family firm um, and to head to international finance instead. Uh, you worked in London for a number of years. You worked in, uh, in in banking, to put it in very simple terms, and you worked as a management consultant for uh, McKinsey as well. Um, that was, um, was that, uh, why did you do that? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think, uh, first of all, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, usually finance or strategy, consulting, you consult when you don't know what to do or you had, you had done too much. Uh, in my case, I didn't know what to do and I hadn't done anything. So I, I learned, uh, I worked a lot uh, both in Lazar, this investment bank, and McKinsey. And, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to see things. So this is an incredible, uh, this is an incredible platform to travel around the world, to see things and to prepare. And that was not, honestly, I didn't know if I would come to... I was not sure. I was not sure because, yeah, I was 21 when I started working and my father always wanted to protect me. Also, my father was doing other things, as I said, was wanted to protect me from the idea that I was forced to do this. You know, there is a tradition in Campania that each, the, the first male of each family is named after the, grand, the grandfather, you know? And this tradition is... For me, it's nice, but it puts an incredible burden on the kid. You know, everybody thinks of their grandfather. You know? And similarly, the idea that because you're part of a family that owns something, you still have to do the same. So I think my dad was brilliant in saying, travel the world, do other things. Then, of course, when I wanted to come back, 
he, he, he pretended this was a bad idea. So I said, no, continue staying outside. But he really was super happy that I came also because he was never involved actually in the winery. So it was the first time that someone from the family actually took really over when I came back in 2009. So I think to answer to your question, I wanted to see as many things as possible in a relatively short period of time. I did it for, for 12 years. It was a wonderful experience. And then I decided to come back with, the, I think I, I did my mistakes when I started, but I think at the same time, having seen other things gave me some positive things for the future. Antonio Capaldo of Feudi di San Gregorio. Well, old vines really is a theme this series because Sarah Abbott, a master of wine, is a co-founder of the Old Vine Conference and she's also a champion for Georgia, almost certainly the birthplace of wine. Georgia is a tiny country in terms of size, but it has a huge impact in terms of wine culture. So it's surrounded by much bigger neighbours, Russia to the north, Turkey to the south, Armenia and Azerbaijan to the um, east. But um, Georgia is probably one of the places where wine was first made. So they think of themselves as the homeland of wine with many justifications. And it's a country that is really returning to our attention in certainly in the West because um, although Georgia's been making wine for at least 8,000 years, when the Iron Curtain came down, it was kind of separated from us. But what's been happening in the last say, 10 to 20 years is that Georgia is really is turning to the West. And um, we are seeing now this huge, certainly, expansion in Georgian wines listed and available and sold in UK wine shops. And it offers really unique and delicious wine styles, its own unique grape varieties, and this very special UNESCO uh, cultural heritage protected wine vessel called the Quivery. And it's really got something for everyone. And we're definitely going to talk about the Quivery at some length later on, but a bit more about the history, because under the Soviet system, it was a wine-producing nation. And that's something of a, a mixed blessing, isn't it? Yes. I think that on the one hand, when so when the Soviets um, basically um, took Georgia over, the thing that was positive is that they designated Georgia as the part of the Soviet Union that produced wine. So Armenia was designated as the brandy place. You know, Georgia was designated as the wine place. But what happened really under what the Georgians would think of as the Soviet occupation is that Georgia's very diverse and creative and very individualistic wine culture became very standardised and in some ways more efficient, but definitely more industrialised. And just to give you an idea, under that system, there were no private wineries or individual winemakers all the land was owned by the state, that all the vineyards were owned by the state, certainly for any major production. Um, all the wineries were owned by the state and were just called winery one, two, three, four, and five. And it was just a kind of um like imagine taking an amazing technicolor picture and just making it black and white. That's kind of what happened to the wine culture in Georgia. So um really what was happening now in Georgia is over the last um sort of 30, 40 years 
it's like a phoenix coming back to life and really returning um, to this very vibrant, creative, diverse wine culture with very high quality wines and amazing enotourism as well. And the Georgians themselves have always loved wine, haven't they? I mean, we have a wine culture going back thousands of years here, don't we? Yes, so Georgians really think of themselves as like God's first winemakers. And there's there's very firm archaeological evidence that backs that up. So, for example, the some of the very earliest evidence of deliberate human winemaking with grape um, seeds and other evidence of winemaking has been uncovered in, in Georgia in these cave dwellings. Um, and I think that that is still important to Georgians today because... They really feel that wine is part of their culture and you see references to wine everywhere. And this is also a place, it's a tiny country, it's about the size of uh, Scotland, very mountainous, but it's always been a place of enormous mixing of different cultures, sometimes in a friendly way, sometimes because it was being invaded or occupied by much bigger neighbours because actually this is really a land of grace in terms of living and growing things everything grows here or despite its location it's actually a beautiful climate very warm benign everything grows so everyone wanted a piece of georgia but the vine loves it here and then the georgian culture is very much about enjoying life and feasting they have this great tradition of what they call the supra which are these um feasts with incredible food lots of wine and the georgians would say say to you that it's really through this communal bonding with great wine and great food that they derive their strength and their sense of identity and it's really incredible that such a tiny country still not only exists um, surrounded by so much bigger and covetous neighbours but thrives with a highly distinctive and individual culture, its own language, its own alphabet, its own grape varieties, its own food, um, its um, own sort of still very modern creative culture in the fields of film and fashion and so on. So it's like a kind of little hidden world, really, Georgia. And certainly for wine lovers, I think that it's, it's in some ways it's like going back in time, but in many ways it's actually like being present at the making of something sort of very much renewed and exciting. And we'll talk about the grape varieties in a minute because there are more than 500 of them. But uh, what about the terroir? What are we talking here? The main thing to get your head around about the land of Georgia is its mountains. Um, And it's really defined by the Caucasus, um, the major Caucasus to the north, which is some of the highest mountains in the world. Um, And those mountains are really what make Georgia such a gorgeously warm, fertile um, sort of place of grace, you know, in terms of nature, because they keep out the cold, harsh weather to the north. And then there's um, south of the Caucasus, there's then another a mountain range called the Minor Caucasus. And in Kakheti in the southeast, the Tawar is basically this elevated river valley which is between these two mountain ranges so you it almost looks like a like a forked tongue if you can imagine it with these two like the forked tongue of these two mountain ranges and then the vineyards um in Kakheti they hug the um the foothills of both the the mountains to the north and then the mountains to the south that face them and that's about 70% of the vineyard area of Georgia but then to the west you have well, really terrains that 
um, as someone said to me, gosh, this looks like Switzerland. So and terrains like Racha, which is um, very high, very mountainous, very steep, with a very different terroir to the east. Um, and Lechumi, which is next to Racha, very similar. Um, over in the far west, you've got um, Guria, which has... Um, very kind of juicy succulent wines and there they grow tea it's basically a subtropical climate um you have imereti in the middle of the country which is very high and some parts of imereti get cut off by snow in the winter and then you also have cartley which is um has is, is a cooler climate than the climate to the immediate east keketi and makes these very fresh juicy uh, red wines and then down in the south right down in the south you've got this very dramatic, high terraced landscape of Mesgeti, um, which borders the um, which borders Turkey, and there again you have really quite sort of stony, um, high um, stony terraced vineyards where you have, have really intense red wines being made. And grape varieties, uh, there are five hundred and twenty five, I think, not necessarily all wine grapes, but uh, they have this extraordinary kind of treasure trove of indigenous grape varieties don't they yes they do so there are 525 that have been identified and they are kept in a sort of um, open air vineyard um, museum if you like which is owned by the government so they have samples of all of these 500 varieties growing in this vineyard and the government has also sponsored a program to do these studies um, to plant the vines, make tiny quantities of wine from them and then advise wine growers on which grape varieties they could consider when they're expanding their vineyards and so on. So it has this incredible richness of grape varieties and they're not related to anything else you've ever heard of. Even if you're really into into your wine, you come to Georgia and everything is new and unfamiliar and strange and delicious. But of that 525, there are actually about 60 now in ongoing commercial production, you know, that you'll see the names of on wine bottles. And from that 60, there are actually about 10 that, you know, uh, for example, you'll see on the, so- the shop sh- shelves in the UK. So um, red variety, Saparavi, one of the greatest varieties in the world, not and not just in my opinion, um, it makes incredibly vibrant, gorgeously delicious wines um, and then white varieties such as um, Riccatzatelli, Kisi which is um, very charming just like its name very fragrant if you like things like um, Sauvignon Blanc you will love Kisi and um, and then also um, the grape Mutsvane which is um, um, I mean like a, it's almost like a cross between um Viognier and Chardonnay <laughs> it's not but that's kind of what it what it tastes like and 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 many others but really Saparavi, Riccatitelli, Mutsvani and Kisi those are like the the four main varieties that you can see um and wines made from those varieties are now on sale in Marks and Spencer in Waitrose at the Wine Society and you know kind of places where you will go and do your oh um Waitrose, Ocado way, way kind of you can do your normal weekly shop so it's not that Georgian wine is is hard to find now. It's much easier to find, I think. Sarah Abbott's MW on the wonder of Georgian wine. Well, to the world of whiskey next, Ian Chang is one of its most accomplished names, yet his journey to master distiller began less than two decades ago. 
In that time, he's gone from novice to headhunted, having made his name at Taiwan's celebrated Kavalan Distillery. He's now embarking on a new adventure in one of the world's most exciting whisky-producing regions, Japan. At the helm of Karuizawa Distillers, he has a purpose-built state-of-the-art facility at his fingertips, the Komora Distillery. And he spoke to me very movingly about his whisky journey. My father had, had a small business of a fruit factory, so I was uh, supposed to, to work there with him. So that was the, uh, the whole idea of studying food technology to begin with. I imagine, given what you've achieved, he's not disappointed that you didn't come and work in the food factory. Uh, yes, yeah, that's right. But unfortunately, he, uh, similar to Jim Swan, Dr. Jim Swan, uh, he also passed away in 2017. But, uh, you know, I, I think he's uh, still watching over me uh, up there and uh, helping me in the background. Yes. Oh, that's nice. Um you mentioned Dr. Jim Swan, who has had an enormous uh, influence uh, on you, uh, a mentor, an inspiration to you. That's right. So I met Jim uh, in 2006. Uh, that was when Kavlan invited him to become uh, the consultant of the distillery, Kavlan Distillery. So between 2006 all the way to 2017, you know, I spent about 12 years with him. So he he had a huge influence on me, uh, both in terms of uh, whiskey making, but also uh, life in general. So, you know, we he was like a father figure to me as well. So whenever I needed advice or advices, he was the person uh, to talk to and and so on. So uh, he, you know, I really missed him. You know, all the good advices that he uh, gave me made uh, what I am today. So I'm, oh. I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. What did you learn mm-hmm. from Doctor Swan? So for the for the twelve years with Doctor Swan, uh, not only he uh, taught me how to produce whiskey in the heat because Taiwan is in the subtropical climate. But also, he shared many of his experience of whiskey production in cold climate, uh, such as in Scotland and also in India as well, because he also had um, a client in India. So it was uh, very uh, comprehensive, I would say, you know, to produce whiskey from all kinds of climate, and also, most importantly, I think Dr. Swan's uh, expertise is in wood policy. So uh, through him, I got to know many good cask suppliers uh, who supply all the right cask uh, in terms of um, wood type, French oak, uh, American oak, and also different sizes and so on. So it was uh, very, uh, very helpful for um, making whiskey, both in Taiwan and also now here in Komoro, in Japan. 2017. Mm-hmm. So you lost your mentor, uh, who had such an enormous uh, impact uh, on your development as a whiskey maker. You mentioned you also lost your father as well. That must have been a, a really tough year. 
Yeah, that uh, 2017, I would say it was uh, a year of both, uh, uh, how do you say that, uh, joy, but also sadness. Uh, mm. When it comes to joy, because uh, 2017, Kavlan was awarded by IWSC to be the uh, distiller of the year. So that was the, the highest achievement for, you know, for Kavlan to have. But unfortunately, that was the year when uh, these two gentlemen passed away, who are both very important in my life. So speaking of 2017, when Kavlan was awarded the Distiller of the Year, uh, it was really a, a pity that Dr. Jim Swan wasn't able to uh, join the uh, award banquet in December with me because he passed away in February. So that was uh, something that I, uh, you know, if he is still, if he was still alive, I, I, I think that that would, would have been a very meaningful year to both himself and I, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. What, beyond his advice to you, what do you think yes. made Cavalan such an enormous success? Because of Jim's expertise in wood policy, so he advised me on how, you know, what, what kind of uh, what kind of casks to, to use, especially in terms of uh, uh, European oak or American oak, because um, the heat will have a huge impact on maturation results if, you know, um, these two types of uh, casks are, are used. So luckily, through Jim... We, we chose all the right casks with uh, mostly American oak, to be frank, to use because uh, that would reduce the, uh, the tannins dramatically in the heat of Taiwan. And also, uh, hence, the, uh, the good results of uh, good and also uh, oily mouthfeel, which Kavlan is uh, very famous and sought after for. Otherwise, the astringency and also the bitterness would be detrimental to the uh, to, to the taste of the whiskey. The choice of hmm. maturation uh, wood is um, absolutely hmm. fundamental to, to whiskey, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Jim always said to me that in terms in terms of influence, I think cask would be sixty to seventy percent influence. So with the remaining thirty percent to be the new make and also other factors. So it is very important to have the right cask, casks for uh, maturation. So you made your name at uh, Cavalan and really built that into the most uh, e extraordinary brand. Um, why then did you decide to leave and move to Japan? I would say the main uh, reason was, to be honest, mostly due to uh, pandemic because uh, during my time at Kavlan, I had to travel extensively for the distillery, also to be the brand ambassador. So when the pandemic uh, started in early 2020, I thought that it was a time to perfect timing to um, to have a rest. And initially, I was actually thinking of uh, having my own consultancy to work with uh, multiple uh, distilleries, similar to Jim, what Jim used to do. So I decided to, to leave the distillery 
And uh, very fortunately, uh, through uh, a mutual friend who introduced me to Koji. Koji is the uh, CEO of uh, Karizawa Distillers Company, who is also my partner as well. So through our mutual friends, we co-founded the company that we have today. So I think I'm very fortunate. It was almost uh, a seamless connection between uh, Kavlan and now Komoro. They must have been very sorry and sad to lose you at Kavalan, I'd have thought. Uh, yes, Mr. Lee, the owner of the distillery, he's, uh, he's a very kind gentleman. And also, actually, he, I mean, both him and I, we were both very, um, how do you say that? Um, I mean, you know, it was difficult for both of us hmm. to, 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 uh, to make this decision. But he, luckily, he uh, really understood that you know, and also respected my uh, my choice and decision. So to be honest, uh, until today, I'm still very grateful to Kavlan, uh, to Mr. Lee, and also to Jim as well, because without these people, I wouldn't have uh, uh, to have a good uh, platform and also the opportunity to learn um, my whiskey uh, craft and then to be able to to work in the industry today. So that was uh, something that I, uh, I'm i very grateful to as well. Well, very gracious of you to uh, say Thank as you. much uh, as well. You so you now have what they call skin in the game. You, you have a, a kind of a degree of ownership, um, a stake in the new project, don't you? That's right. That's right. So... Uh, this time here uh, at Komoro Distillery of Kaluizawa Distillers, uh, I'm very uh, fortunate to be invited by uh, Koji, my partner, also to be, uh, like, like you said, David, a stakeholder. And also, you know, this is uh, something that we are both very excited about, a brand new beginning. So sometimes, I mean, not sometimes, I always consider Kavlan to be my birth, and now is my rebirth. So... With Komoro, we would like to do uh, things that we couldn't achieve at Kavlan. Well, the very best of luck to Ian Chang with his new adventure. And finally, here's one to watch. Alex Brogan was named as the winner of the IWSC's hotly contested Emerging Talent in Wine trophy, uh, sponsored by London Wine Fair, for his not-yet-named Wine Co., lauded for his efforts to democratise the way wine is made. It's a process of which consumers are in control in return for investing in the wine. He told me about how the project came about. As a first-year student, and it was myself and Manuel, another another student at the college, we um, we sat, one, sat down one day in the canteen and we were, like all winemakers at Plumpton or all winemakers anywhere who are just starting out, you want to make your own wine. That that's what you want to do. That's the dream. And the normal the normal path into getting into winemaking is you'll you'd be an intern for a few years, you know, do a few harvests, get it under your belt, then become an assistant, and then hopefully if that goes well, a few years later you might be a winemaker with an analogist telling you what to do. And it's it's a bit of a a bit of a, a ladder to get to the top. Um, so we just had this idea of well, well, how can we just do our own thing? Really, what we thought we needed was a bit of money to be able to buy grapes and rent equipment. 
which we didn't have. So we needed a bit of an innovative way to get that money in effectively. It's a kind of form of crowdfunding, but unlike a lot of crowdfunding, which is just um, please give me some money. This is, uh, you know, comes with um, a sense of participation and, of course, uh, a reward at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've, I've thought about whether this is a crowdfunding model or not for a lot, and I've never got to a definitive answer because it is a little bit you are investing in a couple of young winemakers trying to make their way, but also you are just buying wine, right? You'll, you'll get six bottles at the end of it. It's, yeah, and, and an experience and a journey along the way. So I think I'm leaning towards calling it just a, just a normal product that you buy. It's just you don't get the finished product straight away, but you go straight into the experience. Yeah, I think that's fair enough because, as I say, uh, crowdfunding comes in all sort of uh, shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's, you know, please help me with my Master of Wine studies. Uh, sometimes it's please invest in this innovative business. Uh, sometimes you don't know a great deal about that business. Um, but yours is pretty straightforward. You're uh, taking part in a process, having a say in that process, and then getting your reward at the end of it. Uh, the wine. Um, that's the kind of nutshell version. Um, just give us a bit more detail uh, for those listening who might want to take part themselves on how it works, uh, what you're expected to do and what you get. Yeah, so the, the overall concept is that, yeah, we, we sell the wine before it's made. It's it's almost like on premier, but it's, it's before on premier. So we, we, we tend to joke that it's a pre-on premier offering. Um, and you buy six bottles, you buy you buy half a case, um, and then in exchange, you get a vote in how we make the wine. So every time us as winemakers come across a, a decision that we would make ordinarily, uh, we send an email to our members that explains all the pros and cons of a decision, the sort of the risks, crucially, I guess, the impact on taste. Uh, and then we let people decide on how we make the wine. Um, we only provide good options and we sort of decide those options. Uh, but then people can choose pretty much exactly how we make the wine from starting out, you know, great variety through to picking date, whether we do it earlier or later, uh, whether we add yeast or what specific yeast we add to the ferment, all the decisions through the winemaking until it's, you know, until it's until it's ready. And then alongside that, we also do a bit more of the less serious stuff. I say less serious, the, the non-winemaking stuff. People also get to uh, name the wine, hence why we're called Not Yet Named Wine Co., um, they get to design the label. They decide whether it's a screw cap or a cork or whether we wax the top. Um, even some really daft stuff like the music that we play to the barrels, just just to keep it interesting as well. It's, it's not all technical winemaking. It's also a bit of fun. This idea of having the winemaking process uh, kind of democratised in this way initially uh, struck me as completely bonkers. Uh, I've told you that before. In fact, I said it in front of an audience at the London Wine Fair. I think I'm wrong. Uh, I think I was just being overcautious. Um, do, 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 what sort of reaction have you had? Have you had many people who've kind of questioned the sanity of this process? Um, a few people, but I, I'm also quite a cautious person myself. And this idea was in my head for a long time. And I think I went through every permutation of what could happen and what would go wrong. So when I start to explain it to people, I think I pretty much had an answer to other people's concerns because I had those same concerns myself. And uh, and actually, some of those concerns are sort of real and still exist um, in terms of it's not necessarily the way a winemaker would go about making the best possible wine. Like ideally, and it's true of anything, right? You want to start with a plan and go through that step by step and adjust if necessary. But this doesn't allow us to plan in the same way. I think we originally did try to do a little 
tree diagram of all the permutations and how it could end up, but it got very complicated very quickly. So we just hmm. decided to wing it. <laughs> and well, it's, it's sort of, it has worked. And I guess our focus is on the experience and learning the wine making process as much. So if the wine isn't top notch, then you know, it's, it's less important. However, you know, I think we've been lucky, certainly with the, the first vintage that it, it has turned out to be pretty good. This is uh, the key, I think. You know, looking at the emails you send out, and we'll come to the way you explain things uh, in a minute because it's it's really good. But you are basically being invited to kind of go on a winemaking journey uh, with people who are still learning themselves. I mean, that that's fair, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and it's it's how we write the emails. So. As somebody who's relatively inexperienced with making their own wine, when it comes to the decision, if I know something's coming, I'll I'll really study it. Like I'll get the um, the scientific journals. I'll, I'll be reading the the trusted textbooks that Plumpton provided with us, and I I make notes on what I would do and the various options and what might happen if we adopt different techniques or not. And then from these notes, I pretty much just drop them into the email. So it is exactly what I'm learning and what I'm thinking. It's very much my you know, like a, a brain dump of what's going through my head when I'm thinking of the options for a decision um, just without all of the responsibility of having to make that decision at the end. Uh, you mentioned that obviously you don't want to screw up the wine. So therefore you're not giving completely batshit crazy options to your followers, members, uh, whatever you call them, fellow kind of uh, journey goers. Uh, but I mean, when you're giving those options, um, you are, they are genuine options. So you could, as um, a follower, member, whatever you call them, you could really significantly impact the wine with um, a, a decision that you're invited to vote on, couldn't you? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what we, I guess it's one of our main tenets is that we want to keep every vote interesting and impactful. There are a couple of votes that we've had in the past, which we just do for interest rather than that can actually change the wine significantly. But generally, yeah, we want them to be different and we want people to, you know, have a bit of a fight over things. Like we like people in their community talking to each other and the members. And it also, it took us ages to work out exactly what we'd call them. And we settled on members, but it's, it's not quite perfect. But yeah, there are members currently. Um, and yeah, so we, you're right. Yeah, we give them decisions that, that really do impact the, the, the style of the wine. And I think that's the key. It's always the style of the wine, because sometimes there are decisions that we take that we don't put to vote, which are purely based on quality. So as a very inexperienced winemaker, I'd be very reluctant to use no sulfites at all and go down the natural route. Not to say I wouldn't do or that I'm not a fan of it. And potentially if we were to work with a partner winery who are skilled in that type of winemaking, then we might do it. But sulfites, we added a little bit to our first wine uh, and it wasn't a vote just because I wanted it to be clean, safe and drinkable. So that was one of an example of a decision that we didn't give to the members. Alex Brogan on Not Yet Named Wine Co. Ending our special highlights edition from Series 10. Thanks for listening. Uh, Do join us next time as we begin Series 11 of The Drinking Hour. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.